Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard Leduc. Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we want to talk about actually several different things, but we'll start with an email. This comes to us from John. Brethren, as one of your dozen podcast downloaders with Dr. That's uh, you're overstating you know, yeah, it, John. Why are you shooting Jeez. so high? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, let's just get a let's just get a half dozen to start with. Rachel's mom, my mom. You know what's crazy? Richard's mom. No, no, no. no she, she, she 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 couldn't figure out the uh, app. The no, app. She, she no. She's making a willful choice. <laughs> Not listen. So unlike my mom, who can't figure out how to play it. Yeah. Yours knows what it is and just doesn't want anything to do with it. A hundred percent. Okay, yeah. that's good to know. Uh, Doctor, uh, uh, as one of your dozen podcast downloaders with Dr. Dirk Mott's mom, thank you for putting together a fantastic podcast de- dedicated to church and American history. You use a lot of self-deprecating humor, but I hope you know the information you both provide. I think it's very important that, uh, that you mentions both of us here. It's very important. I'm glad uh, he included you. That's very nice. Provide is faith-building, enlightening, and fascinating. Talk of a tour directed by Dr. Dirkmott piqued my interest and would be something I would give considerable thought to. You've answered a lot of questions I didn't know I had. Now, <laughs> when, when we read that the first time, we laughed, both of us laughed quite a bit. Right. That. And I don't even, own, I, John, I don't know if you're kidding or not, but that, that, may, that tickled us. Yeah, that's because what like. that's what we're trying to do. You know, we, like the military, we want to build you, de- break you down to nothing and then build you back up. But in our case, it's if we have time. We're right? not going to, so, we're not going to so really get back to we it. We spent the first, you know, half hour, 40 minutes creating questions that cause people to doubt their faith without them realizing <laughs> that those were even questions. They didn't have any of those questions before. They now they doubt thought everything. About it before. Yeah. And then join us next week. Yeah. I mean, for the people who are listening, you know, in the in the previous podcast, they're like, well, I, I never really had a concern about the way the United States treated the Mormons when it came to Fourth of July. But now I kind of do. <laughs> and do you have an answer for that? We'll see you next week. That's on right. The Standard of Truth podcast. So we, we are seriously considering making that the main tagline, Standard of Truth podcast, answering questions you didn't know you had. For- <laughs> <laughs> providing we provide people a service that they don't know that they need and certainly don't want and and still don't need that's i correct. think that's that's what we're trying to do most anyway i don't know if you were joking with that john you very well may not have been but we thought that was very good uh so you've answered a lot of questions i didn't know i had and increased my understanding knowledge of and testimony of the prophet joseph smith i really hope you get to season 18 and may god uh continue to bless your efforts i think uh, season 18 so that we can is that because that's when we do polygamy? That's polygamy. Polygamy well, season you know, eighteen. I, I, let me tell you something, John. There, as just for you, no one else can listen to this. Just you. no one else is. <laughs> mom, I need you to stop <laughs> listening for a minute. And Rachel's mom, I need you to stop. Uh, we have a podcast that 
at least brushes the subject of plural marriage coming up. It's coming in a couple of weeks. So yeah, there and, you go. And it it won't. Well, first of all, it'll probably cause you to have questions that you never <laughs> had before. Yeah, that's exactly right. Then it won't answer those questions, and then we'll say maybe we'll get to this. But as you know. We won't. Hey, John, so did you have any questions about a letter that Brigham Young received in 1861 from W.W. Phelps? No, you didn't have any questions? Well, you're about to, and then you'll also get an unsatisfactory answer. Um, I like the way that John signed his email, though, given it showed what that he was listening yeah, to. Yeah, a fan attic, a yeah. fanatic. Yeah, because we, we've just talked about how the Mormons kept being accused of being fanatics because it was a pejorative, and... I, I like that John worked that in there. He did. Uh, and also the, the mention of the tour. So we, we mentioned that last week um, about the idea of doing a tour. Uh, Dr. Dirk Mott, as he now goes by since he has a PhD, he uh, – <laughs> I went by it even before that. This is true. I went, I went by it, you know, when I was still an undergraduate, like, well, I'm going to be this. So This is true. It is funny. It, I, I say that as a, as a joke, but – uh, when we were at Utah State uh, together, it was Garrett Dirkmat, and then when he was getting his PhD, it was uh, uh, Garrett Dirkmat. And I said, "Oh, that's very nice." Very yeah, well, good. you had to change it for the that's correct the optics of it. No, it's because my brother went back to the original Dutch pronunciation of our name, and you, you get it pronounced. People are closer to spelling it right or pronouncing it yes. right when you when you say that. They way. at least know that they don't know how to spell it, and that's better than them guessing. <laughs> Yes, that's right. Think about a podcast here hosted by Dirk Mott and then his friend LeDuc. No one's ever getting our names right ever yeah. for any reason. No, in, in all the emails everyone sends in, all three of them, <laughs> all of the names are always spelled it. No, I'm just kidding. No, you, some people they, do a great No, they job. do a great job. Well, so the, the idea of, uh, of leading a tour was something that John mentioned too. And so I just wanted to say, we mentioned that in the last episode, and we got actually quite a bit of response that was very positive and very good. And so we're going to put um, a link on the website, the website that you, many of you, didn't know existed. So, frankly, I just found out. Yeah, that's right. Standardoftruth.com is the is the website, and thanks to some very kind friends of ours that have put it together and have uh, kept it up to date. Even like, secured the website. I mean, honestly. just I mean, like sincerely, just the nicest, most wonderful people in the which world. Which I asked multiple times if I could. Give them a shout out. And they let, said, they most said, assuredly not. Yeah, they said, I don't want to be associated with you. <laughs> I bought you this domain name so that you wouldn't mention me at all. That's it was, right. It was basically hush money. Anyway, but, it was yeah. just so, so very, very, very kind. And so, uh, standardoftruth.com, and we'll have a, a link up at the top. And so, um, if if you are interested and enough listeners want to go, then we'll look to put one together. And if and if not, yeah, then we just we thought it might be something fun to do. I mean, where you go, you go on a church history site and it'll be with people who you know who already are familiar with the our uh, our I don't want to say our humor, but yes. uh, our inability uh, that those people you know they will have you know if they want to. I mean, I think that'd be fun to do. Um, and if we have enough people that do it, we'll try to we'll try to put it together. Yeah, it'll be great. And so that actually that actually brings up another email that we got that talked a little bit about um, some of the sites uh, from from Jill. She she brought up some of her favorite places in Nauvoo. Yeah, she brought up uh, especially you know she went to a lot of places. So she was she wasn't on a big tour. She was just with like four people, I think she said. Um, but um, she asked about going to the old Pioneer Cemetery in Nauvoo. 
And uh, yes, that's a, a, a site that I've gone to. It's it's uh, the cemetery. It's actually pretty, well, not pretty far, but it's a little ways outside of town now. It seems like it's a lot further outside of town now than it would have been because there were about 20 times the number of people living in Nauvoo uh, by the time the saints were driven out as there were uh, today. In fact, today we found out <clears throat> that Nauvoo has officially dropped, Nauvoo, the city today, has officially dropped below the 1,000 population mark. And that's actually a really big deal for the people living there because, at least as far as it goes in Illinois, once you get below 1,000, you're no longer, you no longer qualify for a whole bunch of different funding things because you're, you're too small to be considered a, 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 a city, basically. Um, but that just recently was something we found out. Anyway, the Nauvoo Pioneer Cemetery Jill mentioned as being a, a place of real solemnity and that she thought it was even more special than some of the other places she'd been. And I think everybody has different experiences with different sites. Um, the, the Pioneer Cemetery, it's the biggest thing that it has there is it has, uh, this is where Edward Partridge was um, buried, the first bishop of the church. Remember we talked about him and his uh, conversion uh, when he went to go visit Joseph and saw that his, saw that his, the cornfields were, you know, well, those are nice rows. I'm going to join this church. This gospel must be true. Before I didn't believe, I wish our missionary work was that easy, uh, you know, where someone's like, I'm not going to listen to one thing you Mormons have to say. Well, is that a, is that an Armani bag? Well, okay, come on in. Let's have a, you know, I don't know. Anyway, but, um, um, there's, there are all kinds of, of cool sites, uh, like, like that, that people have spiritual experiences with that, you know, they don't expect to. And, and, um, I find that there, I have different emotions, uh, different sites that I'm at. So thanks Jill for sharing that. Hopefully you had a, a good experience, uh, touring. Um, don't we have some other uh, yes. emails? So this, so this one comes to us from Daniel, uh, from Cincinnati. And so this is actually, we're going to use this to kind of talk a little bit about some of the things that he brings up here. So we really have a listener in Cincinnati. Uh, we have one now. We'll see how it goes after we, uh, well, probably not yeah. now, but well, I mean, so we have, we have one in Vermont. Yeah. We have one in Cincinnati mm -hmm. and my mom <laughs> and Rachel's mom. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Four. <laughs> Hi Garrett. Thank you so much for all of the effort you and your team make in providing this podcast. To put it simply, the Standard of Truth podcast has been as influential for me personally as I have heard many claim, come follow me to be for them. That is uh, that is high praise, by the way. That is a yeah, great, is. great podcast. Um, my question, how can I know whether to accept a religious account as historical fact? For example, as a believer, I accept the appearance of God the Father and his son to the 14-year-old Joseph Smith as historical fact. There are numerous first-hand and countless second- and third-hand accounts of it, and know the church to do the same. What, though, of lesser-cited events? For instance, how is the appearance of God, the Father, and the Son to the school of the prophets in 1833 to be treated? Or what of the appearance of Moroni in disguise to Mary Whitmer, in which he showed her the gold plates? I don't believe either religious account to be canonized, so can I treat them as historical facts? at least in a church setting? Or would it be 
uh, or would that be questioned even by believers, not to mention my non-member fact-checking friends? Uh, Daniel. Well, thank you, Daniel. That's a, that's a really good uh, question, actually. And the the question of how can I know whether or not I take a source as a good source, that's, that's a question that historians ask all the time. One thing that I was actually just speaking to a, a youth group the other day, which which I'm not very good at. I'm not I, I'm not designed to speak to youth groups, um, but I think people, you know, they're like, well, you know, you're you're free. <laughs> yeah, you're free. I mean, are you free this weekend? <laughs> and I mean, are you available? And also, no, no money. Um, but uh, it reminds me of a comedian who uh, said that. You know, people are always trying to get me to write scripts because I'm a comedian. They're always like, "Oh, that's that's great. Could you write a script?" Because they they want me to write a comedy. And and he said, "That's just weird to me. That's like you know going up to a, a chef and saying, "Wow, you're an amazing chef. Can you farm?" <laughs> you know, I realize they're kind of related, but they're not really that related, right? Um, uh, but anyway, I was speaking to him, and um, that was one of the the questions we were talking about is. Well, how do you know what is a good source and what isn't? We talked about this very early on in the podcast before we had microphones that functioned uh, or anyone listening or I don't know. Yeah, no, that's it. Those yeah, two just things. Those two things. We Or electricity. Did we have? I think we, <laughs> I were, think we, we were functioning on battery power, actually. And maybe that was then. But um, th- th- that question is, is kind of a, a broader question than maybe you even uh, realize. And that is. The things that historians take at, for historical value is obviously different than what religionists take for religious value. Um, for instance, um, that Jesus Christ lived is something that's almost universally accepted by the historical community. There are occasionally people who try to claim that Jesus never even existed, um, but even agnostic and atheistic historians um, that are respected uh, will acknowledge, yes, of course, Jesus lived. I mean, he, he was an actual person who actually lived. who was an actual teacher. He, you know, and then, you know, they put in the, in parentheses, but he wasn't the son of God, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but that he existed at all is, is very much um, accepted almost universally by, by historians so that Jesus existed is, is, is again, you, are you going to find a few people, generally irreligious people, claiming they didn't even exist at all? Yeah. But what is the, the general consensus among historians? That Jesus was a real person who really taught things, who was, you know, really believed uh, that he had a mission from God, that kind of thing. It's the, it's the, Accounts surrounding what Jesus did miraculously, including his own resurrection, that that go beyond the realm of historical inquiry alone and have to go to the realm of faith. And this is something I've talked about before on the podcast, that the, the goal of every historian is to pr- present to your audience through sources, not, not just through conjecture. So it's, you know, you're not just running a TikTok here. I mean, actual sources, you uh, present to your audience what most likely happened in the past. It's part of the reason why people with these 
with with conspiracy theories of 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 all kinds of you know you know Willard Richards having you know seven guns in Carthage jail or something like that why why they're so frustrating because they're not actually using the majority of sources they take a single source and they say well if that single source no matter how good it is is right and this single source no matter how good it is is also right well then therefore all of this other stuff is true um for a historian they're going to they're going to say what is most likely that happened in the past and what's most likely the case is never something miraculous so you can see that there, that history and religion are really at odds with one another on that point because is it most likely that that Jesus walked on water uh no in fact if it was most likely we wouldn't consider it a miracle. I mean, none of us would be standing up in church bearing our testimonies about reading the parable of the guy who walked slowly home and made it there safely. You know, I mean, you'd be like, oh, well, what, a, what an incredible miracle that has been wrought this day. You know, I mean, <laughs> you, the reason why miracles are miracles is because they can't happen without the interposition of God. And so that means... The essential aspect to religious truth claims is the miraculous. No matter how much we want to try to prove what it is that we believe. And, and look, I, I understand where that, that urge comes from. I mean, you're talking to someone who has a PhD in history. Of course, I would love any type of evidence that helps prove what it is that I believe religiously. But fundamentally... However far down the rabbit hole of let me find evidence to prove X to you, you go. You are going to get to a place where there isn't what you would call historical evidence to prove what it is that you're saying. Or you'd go beyond the consensus of historians to do it. I mean, I, this is why I've always found it so odd that um, believing Christians attack the Joseph Smith story with such ferocity. They're just so certain that Joseph Smith is so wrong and on and on and on and on. Well, why? Oh, because he's claiming an angel appeared to him. Yeah, because the Bible doesn't have angels appear to anyone ever, right? You know, I mean, it's a good thing no one's ever been in prison when, when, when prison walls miraculously came down and there was never any feeding of the 5,000 and there wasn't any walking on water and there wasn't any raising Lazarus from the dead. I mean, all those things happened. So it's not that you can't believe that an angel appeared to Joseph Smith. It's that you don't want to believe that an angel appeared to Joseph Smith, but you're not, you're not operating on some kind of you know, higher realm of, 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 uh, evidence because you, because you decide not to believe it. You don't want to believe it. Right. Fundamentally, every Christian, every Christian believes the most fantastical thing in the history of this world. Every single believer, every Christian, what, whether they are a, a Presbyterian or a snake handler from West Virginia or whether they're a Congregationalist Baptist, it doesn't matter. Every Christian believes 
the most impossible thing in the in the history of the world. They believe that a, a carpenter's son who lived 2,000 years ago was murdered by the Romans and then came back to life three days later. And not just that that happened, that when he was murdered, he took upon him somehow in a way that you can't explain and in a way that you can't, uh, you can't replicate. He took upon him all of our sins, all of our weaknesses, all of our sicknesses and made it so that we could have our sins taken from us. But even if you don't understand or believe in sin beyond that, all of us would live again and not just live again in this, you know, an amorphous spiritual realm, the idea of living again, but all of us would have our bodies again and live in a very real sense again. The fundamental uh, belief of Christianity is that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world and was resurrected three days later. Now, if you were trying to prove that, how could you do it? The Bible already demonstrates that the, the plan that was in place, right? Uh, the fear of the, the leaders of the people, you know, the reason why the rock was rolled in front of the tomb was they were afraid that, you know, Jesus' followers would, would secretly steal Jesus' body and then go around and tell everybody that, that you know, he'd been resurrected. Um, so that it, it shows already how they were preparing to respond to the idea of Jesus's resurrection. Oh, oh yeah. Well, he, obviously he wasn't really resurrected because honestly, what's more likely? Is it more likely that someone who was dead for three days had an angel come and roll away that stone and came back to life and now lives forever as a God or that someone wasn't ever divine at all and his followers stole the body and hit it and then told everyone, oh, he came back to life and he appeared to me. Well, it's actually more likely the second one, in part because we don't have any other evidence of anyone else ever being resurrected three days later, right? We certainly don't have any current evidence of all of us being resurrected or proof that all of our sins have been taken from us. Now this is the this is the terrace down part, right? This is the and you stop listening right now. Thank you very much. Uh, the standard of truth podcast. No, we have to now build it back up. But we don't believe in Jesus's resurrection because we can prove it. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course, there's all kinds of testimonies to it. There's all kinds of people who offer their witness that they saw Jesus as proof. But we don't believe it because we can prove it. We believe it because it's true. That's very different. And so, you know, however logical you might think you are as a, um, uh, you know, a, 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 as someone, you know, academically examining Christianity, well, I'm only going to believe the things that I can absolutely prove. Fundamentally, if you are a Christian, you have already bid a lasting and fond farewell from having a logical, historical answer to everything it is that you believe. Are there things that you can do that are pretty cool? Yep. But fundamentally, most fundamentally, as a Christian, 
the thing that matters most to you, that Jesus died and was resurrected, is absolutely beyond the realms of logical proof. That doesn't mean it's not true. It is true. It just means that it is the 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 evidence of things not seen, right? It's the, it is something that you have to believe on the basis of the Holy Spirit. Now I know that wasn't wasn't strictly speaking your question. Um, when it comes to these other, I would say anecdotal um, uh, uh, stories that we hear, you know, what about this? I mean, and and you gave some great ones, right? Um, I think you have to take them on an almost case by case basis. The church certainly talks about uh, the angel appearing to Mary Whitmer and her having that experience seeing the plates. In fact, if you go to Fayette um, uh, on a church history tour, one of the things that will be discussed is the fact that she there saw those plates. But where does that account come from? Well, it comes from David Whitmer. David Whitmer is telling that story many, many, many years later in life. So if the question is, how do I know whether or not an angel actually appeared to Mary Whitmer? From a historical perspective, the answer is, well, you don't actually. You don't know historically whether or not. What do you know as a historian? Because as a historian, if you know, you have to just assume we're all atheists. Right. But, but I, I almost wonder if the question is, is that even a good enough source to consider it from a faith standpoint? Well, so that's what I mean. I want to start with a historical, from a historical point, I can't answer the question of whether or not an angel appeared to anyone ever, because there's no way to demonstrate that an angel appeared to someone. That's not replicatable. It's not provable in a historical sense. What can you do as a historian you can prove, or at least demonstrate, that people said that an angel appeared to them, right? So that so it is absolutely a historically true statement to say, David Whitmer said the angel appeared to his mother and showed her the plates. That's actually an unimpeachable historical statement. Now, sometimes you're a little bit further afield than that, right? Because what if it what if this source was, you know, it's not, but what if the source was someone said that they had a conversation with someone who had talked to David Whitmer and David Whitmer said that, right? Now you can start to see, I, I'm, I'm even moving away from the historical fact of David Whitmer having said it. How far after did David Whitmer say? Uh, four or five decades. Okay. Yeah. Long time. So, so you've talked about this before, where usually when as things are much further down. Now, so yeah, I mean the the, the historians prize contemporary documents. We want things that happened at the time because that demonstrates what someone was actually thinking at the time. Now, that doesn't mean that someone remembering something later that proves it didn't really happen. That's that's not the case. But those are the kinds of things you prize. At the same time, you also have to have a little bit of historical humility and realize that just because you don't have a source that talks about it earlier is not the same thing as that thing not having happened. I think about in my life, um, 
I was uh, a part of a very miraculous thing that happened. And I never wrote it down. I didn't write it down because I'm a terrible journal keeper because nothing makes you a worse journal keeper than reading everyone else's journals all of your life because you're like, I don't want anyone to know this. And then you just don't write anything down. Right. Um, in, in, in all seriousness though, I didn't write it down, but I know that that experience happened. I was there for it. Now, what if 20 years from now, I finally decide to start telling people about that experience. Someone might say, well, that didn't really happen. I mean, he didn't even tell anyone about it for like 30 years. Well, again, that's what a cynic would say. But just because someone is telling it later is not in and of itself proof that the event didn't happen. In this case, where we're talking about an angel appearing, we're already beyond the realm of provability because an angel's involved. So whether it happened last week or whether it happened, you know, 40 years from now that the person said it, the fact that you're talking about an angel already places it in a different realm than, than traditional historical thought. Now on the, on the religious side of things, and I think that's really what, you know, what your question was about, what primarily do I believe these things, right? Should, should I take it as the gospel's truth that, that the angel appeared to Mary? And I think that's where you kind of, I mean, some of that is, is really based upon your own uh, determination and faith. I would say that in a church setting, I, I've not only heard that shared, I've been in places where it's being shared and it's, it's certainly an, an, something that's shared in church magazines and manuals, right? I don't think you're at, in any danger of saying, and, and if you want to soften it, you can, you can say, you know, David Whitmer said that his mother had the angel Moroni appear to her and show her the plates. Now, that's a true statement. It's a it's a true statement. And you explaining where that source comes from doesn't in any way make it not true. It's at least allowing people to know that it's not Mary Whitmer, you know, in 1829, writing in her journal, saw the angel today, also made buttermilk or something like that. I don't know. It's not in her journal. Um, buttermilk came after the angel? It well, wasn't I mean, before? But, was making buttermilk and also. And also, yeah, you know, hot today, weather very warm, angel appeared, saw plates, laundry tomorrow. I mean, yeah, you know, if you ever read 19th century journals, that's kind of how they read. Um, but but every one of those instances is different because they, the type of source is different, the audience is different. And so I, I wish I could give you, you know, the, oh, this is the proof. When it comes to someone attributing something to Joseph Smith, I think you can take the Joseph Smith papers as your guide. In fact, we'll, we're going to be doing a podcast shortly where we deal with one of these uh, questions very up close, where it's, here's someone claiming that Joseph Smith received a certain revelation, but they're not claiming it until many years after the fact. Did, do, we, do we treat that as a Joseph Smith revelation? And, and like I said, we'll approach that in, in a, in a later podcast, but, um, you know, your other your other question. So I, I love the way that obviously you've thought a lot about this. Um, but I love the fact that you provided two different types of examples here. The first example you provided was the Mary Whitmer story. 
And then you provided the other example of God and Jesus appearing in the school of the prophets. Now, this is something we referenced when we were talking about the the word of wisdom. And um, again, if you're wondering, is it accepted in church? Yet not only is it accepted in church, when you go to Kirtland, one of the things that the missionaries there will read to you is you're in the... uh, uh, in the upper room of the the, the Newell K. Whitney store, um, they'll read to you the account uh, of Zebedee Coltrane where he talks about Jesus passing through the room and, and the father passing through the room. Now, in that case, even though that is incredibly, I mean, that, I mean they're seeing collectively Jesus and the father. That's a, that's a pretty big deal. But he's also giving that account many years later in a school of the prophets meeting in Utah. So someone could say, well, maybe he's just misremembering that. And and you want to be a little careful of the details he's providing because it is so many years later. But he is not the only one who gives an account of that. John Murdoch also gives a later, it's also later, but gives a later account of that experience. But I feel like I'm a car salesman, you know, like I'm doing an infomercial. But wait, that's not all. Um, If you order now, we'll also throw in the minutes from the 1833 meeting, March. Um, uh, Actually, the, the experience you're talking about is one of the coolest ones in church history. Because while you do have these later accounts where people are describing what they saw, if you go to the minutes of that, the actual minutes of that meeting, let me let me take you there. Um, it's March 18, 1833. So 18 March, 1833. Um, they, they're all there met in the school of the prophets room. Um, and it's, it's a pretty big deal because, uh, Joseph is, is calling, um, men to the, the presidency of the high priesthood. Um, and that, that's that's a big deal. He's giving keys and things like that. And then as the meeting goes on, let me read the minutes from uh, from the minute book. After which several exertions were made given to faithfulness and obedience to the commandments of God and much useful instruction given for the benefit of the saints with a promise that the pure in heart that were present would see a heavenly vision. And after remaining for a short time in secret prayer, the promise was verified to many present, having the eyes of their understanding opened, so as to behold many things, after which bread and wine was distributed by Brother Joseph, so after that they had the sacrament, after which many of the brethren saw a heavenly vision of the Savior and concourses of angels. And that's Frederick G. Williams writing that March 18th of 1833. Again, This isn't going to prove to any of your non-Latter-day Saint friends that obviously Jesus appeared in the school of the prophets. What this does do, however, is it demonstrates that Zebedee Coltrane and John Murdoch aren't just later in life making up the idea that Jesus could have appeared to them in the school of the prophets. This document is from 1833. Does it prove that Jesus appeared to them? Of course it doesn't, 
because someone could obviously say on the other side, well, they just wrote that in there and they just, they, you know, maybe they were taking the magic mushrooms that we talked about earlier. Um, and, and that they just thought that they saw him. Of course, it doesn't prove that Jesus appeared to them, but it certainly provides some contemporary evidence that at the very least, these men believe that they have seen Jesus. I can't prove whether or not they have, but they are not just 30 years later talking about it. They're talking about it right there. And Frederick G. Williams keeping the minutes of this meeting is a, he, this is a contemporary shared visionary event. This isn't just Joseph saw God in the grove. This is a dozen plus men in that meeting room are all collectively seeing Jesus. And that's a lot bigger deal than uh, it, it's a lot, it, it, it's very different than the Mary Whitmer account. The Mary Whitmer account was not even recorded by her, but clearly something that she told to her family and her son later told it to other people. Again, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It is just very different to have a secondhand later witness rather than uh, a contemporary minutes of a meeting saying that a bunch of people here saw Jesus, that you can see that they're not quite the same thing. In either case, both of those events are accepted um, in faith by by Latter-day Saints. And so um, I think you're fine in a, in a church setting saying those things. You can always be a little hesitant with some of them. You know, you can always say, you know, you know, David Whitmer said that his mother saw, you know, the plates, you know, you, it, and that's a true statement. And if someone's like, well, I don't like that. Well then, you know, that's fine. But that's still a true statement. David Whitmer did say his mother saw the plates. Um, let me give you an example of where this um, becomes much more problematic, right? It's more problematic the more removed from the original source you become, Many of you have probably heard, well, let me just ask you, have you ever heard that um, Joseph Smith taught that the telestial kingdom is so great and glorious that people would kill themselves to go there if they ever, if they knew how great it was? Yes. Okay. I've heard that. From your seminary teacher or? From, um, from, from me? Mo- was I the one who said that? Yeah, it was you. It's always been you. No, okay. it was, it's, uh, I've heard it from multiple people. Right. So it's kind of like a. It's something you hear people say in the church whenever, I mean, you know, suicide's a pretty difficult topic. And um, so I don't think it usually comes up on the on the the topic of suicide, but I think it comes up more on the topic of our Father's mercy and how great the kingdoms are, right? right, right. Where they're so great and glorious that, that you would die to get in them, essentially. Well, well, you know, I've searched through Joseph Smith's papers and, and he doesn't say that anywhere. And as someone who's, you know, written on and loves to research the various kingdoms, because it's like the coolest part of what we believe that we don't realize that we believe that we don't actually believe in a Protestant hell, but we believe in a type of universal salvation of all mankind, which is a pretty cool thing. You know, I would love to know what that, that source is, right? Well, where does it come from? If Joseph didn't ever say it, then where did it come from? Well, it comes from a... a a later account from through Wilford Woodruff. Now, Wilford Woodruff's a pretty good source, but we're talking much later. So Joseph dies in 1844. Um, this source comes to us from 1877. 
So at least 33 years later, okay? And if it was just Wilfred Woodruff saying, Joseph said to me, you'd kill yourself to get into the terrestrial kingdom, um, you know, uh, go Red Sox. Um, if, if, that was, if, if, if that was what it was saying, that would be different, but that's actually not how we get that source. We get it from a great journal keeper, unlike myself, um, <laughs> a guy by the name of Charles, sorry, Charles Lowell Walker. Walker keeps a pretty good journal. And in his journal, August 19th of 1877, he goes to Sunday school. Remember Sunday school back then wasn't held in the middle of church. It was a later thing. So he goes, goes to the later Sunday school. And this is what he writes. Some of the young brethren spoke after which brother Woodruff spoke on the influence the temple had had upon the people of St. George and throughout the settlements of the saints and that those holy men and women who officiated in the house of the Lord for their kindred dead would have it to, to meet in the spirit world and would be looked upon with joy as saviors on Mount Zion. And on Friday last, while speaking at the funeral of Matilda Moody, he said, we should improve the present time and do all we could for our dead ere death called us away. He referred to a saying of Joseph Smith, which he heard him utter, and then he has in parentheses like this, that if the people knew what was behind the veil, they would try by every means to commit suicide that they might get there. But the Lord, in his wisdom, had implanted the fear of death in every person that they might cling to life and thus accomplish the designs of their creator. Okay, so you probably already uh, picked up a few of the issues here, right? Even the journal entry he's giving is not from Wilfred Woodruff speaking at that moment, right? Sunday, they're having a discussion about the temple. And it's actually last Friday that Wilfred Woodruff was speaking at a funeral. And, and Walker actually even is giving you the, the hint of, folks, this isn't word for word. When he writes in parentheses in his journal, he referred to the saying of Joseph Smith, which he heard him utter like this, meaning what I'm about to say isn't word for word, but it's the gist of it, Right. Now, I don't know if that's Wilford Woodruff saying it's the gist of it. More likely, it's Walker saying this is the gist of what I remember Wilford Woodruff saying about that. But here's what's so very interesting when it comes to sources, Daniel. You've always heard it that if the telestial, if we saw the telestial kingdom, if we knew how great it was, if we knew how glorious it was, we'd kill ourselves to go there. Notice what's missing from the actual source. Did I say the word telestial at all in reading that? No. Yeah. He's just shaking his head. That no, no. We're on an audio. We're on an audio presentation right. uh, format, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time, I'm in here. He's shaking his head. Our wives are behind us, disapproving. Thumbs oh down. My goodness, they hate this. Telling, yeah, so you know, telling us how terrible this is. Falling asleep. <laughs> They, they give us constant feedback, and it's always negative. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to read any of their uh, comments online. Well, if they were to send us emails, they would all be negative. You'll notice what's going on here, and this is kind of an example of how sources get away from you. 
Well, if the source itself never says anything about the telestial kingdom being so great, you'd kill yourself to go there. How is it that it came down to us as if you knew how great the telestial kingdom was, you'd kill yourself to go there? Well, the answer is because of a false belief. Latter-day Saints have falsely believed that if you commit suicide, that that's the same as committing murder and murderers go to the telestial kingdom. Ergo, anyone who commits suicide goes to the telestial kingdom. Now, the, the church repudiates that. In fact, the church uh, uh, is, is stated very clearly that that's not the case. In fact, Richard, do you have that? Yep. So the, the church has a, a gospel topics uh, essay on that. If you look up uh, suicide on the uh, churchofjesuschrist.org website, it'll take you to that. So I just want to read just, just a portion of that. Although it is wrong to take one's own life, a person who does so may not be responsible for his or her actions. Only God can fully understand and judge the situation. Elder M. Russell Ballard said, and this was in, this was in 1987, um, Obviously, we do not know the full circumstances surrounding every suicide. Only the Lord knows all of the details, and he is it, or, or it is he who will judge our actions here on earth. When he does judge us, I feel he will take all things into consideration. Our genetic and chemical makeup, our mental state, our intellectual capacity, the teachings we have received, the traditions of our fathers, our health, and so forth. So that was uh, in, an Enzyme article um, in October of 1987. And it's just an absolutely beautiful sentiment. Yeah. I mean, President Ballard's awesome with basically everything he talks about, but um, the, what, what, what are they trying to do? Well, so sometimes, here's a great example where we sometimes adopt the doctrines of other religions around us culturally. It is a much more serious issue when it comes to say Catholicism to uh, commit suicide. And, and, and so because we've tried to equate uh, the telestial kingdom with our hell, because we are so desperate to have hell. And when Joseph said it doesn't really exist, we still said, no, but I really want it to. We started saying, well, the telestial kingdom, that's like hell, even though Joseph said it's not. That's the reason why you've heard this quoted to you referencing the telestial kingdom, because the person doing it was trying to equate the telestial kingdom with where people who commit suicide go to, even though the quote doesn't say that at all. It, so it actually shows you know, the dangers of these kinds of, of quotes because let me let me just say, look how far removed we are. I don't know when Joseph actually said that. I'm assuming that he said it before he died. Okay, so before it, now, now Wilford Woodruff did have lots of visions, so maybe he <laughs> said it later, okay? But there's nothing to indicate that in our source. So Joseph, at the earliest, said it 33 years before Wilford Woodruff related it in that meeting. Also, so, so that, that, allows for, I don't know exactly what Joseph said when he said it, right? Secondly, we actually have another filter there. 
I'm not actually trying to figure out how Wilfred Woodruff remembered what Joseph said 33 years later. With this source, I'm actually trying to figure out how it is that Charles Walker remembered Wilfred Woodruff three days earlier remembering what Joseph had said 33 years earlier. And even Walker himself is putting in parentheses something like this, right? Now, again, does that mean that Joseph never said anything of the kind? Of course not. It it doesn't prove that Joseph didn't say it. But it does mean you would take a source like that and you would be much more careful in how you use it. First and foremost, probably not good to not even use the source at all. Running around and saying, Joseph said that people would kill themselves just to get into the celestial kingdom. That isn't part of anything in this source. And that that interpretation only developed because of the wrong interpretation that it's a certainty that if anyone kills themselves, they immediately go to the celestial kingdom. As we've talked about on a previous podcast, when we talked about the vision, Doctrine and Covenants section 76, we don't even know the ultimate end of everyone in those kingdoms. Now, again, I know there's a lot of people who think they do, but at least officially that hasn't been revealed. And so if we don't even know officially whether or not there's progression between the kingdoms, then it would be an odd thing to say, but for certainty, anyone who commits suicide, you know, they're in the lowest level of the celestial kingdom. So that was that was early on in, in season one where we talked about uh, the vision from Doctrine and Covenants section 76 and uh, Garrett read an official statement from the church, I believe from the mid fifty mid 1950s yeah. mm-hmm. about that the church takes no official stance on the idea of progression from one kingdom to another. And that might come as news to a lot of people who have- Haven't listened. To you should go back and listen to those yeah, episodes absolutely. where we talk about that and we, and we talk about those sources. Again, I'm not, uh, I, when I say we don't know, that's, that's what I actually mean it. I'm not saying I don't know. <laughs> well, some, that, some people are very, have very strong opinions right. one way or the other. And people but the, feel very strongly about things, but there's a difference between feeling very strongly about something and the church having an official position on it. Um, I think that's the case with many issues uh, that the church deals with. There are people who feel like, you know, not having a ham radio in your house is akin to saying that you're not following the prophet because you're not ready for the inevitable disaster with your, your not just, you know, I'm not just a one year supply. I'm a, I'm a 19 year supply because you know, you got to be ready. There are people who legitimately see other people who don't have the ham radio set up and solar panels and and 10 years of food storage. They see those people as lacking faith because they haven't followed that to that degree. Right. And I mean, I know I'm using kind of a, a facetious example there, but it's, you know, it's also one that hopefully only offends those of you with your ham radio license. And, um, but the reality is going beyond what it is the church officially states is is actually not helpful. Now, I, as a historian, I'm more than willing to talk about the sources that exist on both sides of that discussion. But here, in this particular case, we have a source that essentially got corrupted over time because 
when people were thinking about it, when they, when they, when they read it and it talked about suicide, they immediately equated suicide with going to hell and they equated hell with the celestial kingdom. And so the source doesn't actually say that for all, you know, these people are trying to kill themselves to get into the celestial kingdom. You actually don't know what is being discussed. And that's if that source was contemporary and if it wasn't secondhand and if it wasn't a reminiscence and it's actually all of those things. Again, I know you're probably thinking, Daniel, I feel like I shouldn't have even asked the question because I didn't really get an answer. We'll never hear from Daniel again, but um, we'll probably never even hear from Cincinnati again. It 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 will cease to exist as a city after how badly that was answered. But it really is the case that you have to treat everything on a case-by-case basis. I mean, I think of, uh, you know, Denver Snuffers claims that Jesus has appeared to him. He makes a claim that Jesus has appeared to him. I happen to not believe that. Why? Because I'm pretty sure that if Jesus had a problem with our church today, he wouldn't be appearing to some lawyer from Salt Lake City. If he had a problem, he'd be appearing to the leaders of the church he established and the quorum of the 12 he established, and he'd be talking to them. And so um, for me, you know, inside of the church, when people make claims to miracles that contradict the established order of things, this goes all the way back to our very first two episodes. I, essentially, we want you to go back. Yeah, that's all this is. Th- this that's entire, all this is. I didn't intend it to be this. Season one, episode 13, amazing. <laughs> yeah, you got to check I, it out. I think it's actually our first no, two no, episodes. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. Where we, the first They're two, all great. The fall of, <laughs> <laughs> everything's good. They're all good. Um, but the first two episodes, we talked the fall of the prophet episodes. We actually had this discussion about the multiple times in the early history of the church that people tried to derail Joseph's authority by claiming that they had their own authority. And it, it obviously hugely problematic. And, and I think that that's what I am most concerned with when it comes to sources of spiritual experiences in the past, because, you know, frankly, I can't prove whether or not they happened. Um, but when someone says, I had an angel appear to me and tell me that Joseph Smith is a fallen prophet, right? As, as happens in Joseph's time. Well, I'm going to reject that claim, not because I can historically prove that an angel didn't appear to him because I can't, I can't historically prove a good or an evil angel, but because it's contrary to what God has already revealed. God has already said that truth and revelation for the church are going to come through the established authorities of the church. That doesn't mean that y'all can't have great ideas. I still pray to God, even though I know that the revelation for the church can only come through the prophet, but I need personal revelation to help guide me in my life. But that personal revelation won't ever trump what it is that God's prophets have the keys to reveal. I don't have the keys to receive revelation. No matter how wonderfully smart I think I am, no matter how wonderfully righteous I try to be, no matter what I do, I actually don't have the authority to receive revelation for the entirety of the church. And that's how God set it up. If God wanted to change that setup, well, God would probably tell us, I'm now changing that setup. 
It's not going to come from someone who found the fourth feather of Daniel's vision with the eight horns um, uh, on, on a YouTube video. That's not how God gives revelation. And and the fact that there are so many people claiming that in their particular special circumstance, God is giving it that way, that's just not how God gives it. And so uh, we, we have another... Uh, podcast that we're going to talk about on another fairly controversial subject um, in the church where the church has definitively stated what its position on it is. And yet there are people on both sides of that argument who just refuse to accept that that's what the the definitive statement is because it's not what they want to hear. When you're a part of the church, being a member of the church means believing that ultimately regardless of what I personally believe, politically or socially or whatever, the church has the ability and has the right to declare what is and is not doctrine for its members. And I could fight against that. I can kick against it. I can say, well, I don't really think so. But that is to my own detriment because joining the church, part of what I had to accept is that God has prophets and apostles on the earth today. And if God has prophets and apostles, then that is how truth for the whole church will be revealed. It's not going to be revealed because I was reading in some of the early apostolic fathers' writings the other day. I'll find some really cool things in there, but it won't be revelation for the church. Revelation for the church can only come through his prophets and apostles because God declared that that's how his revelation would come. So, I mean... Honestly, Daniel, I I wish I could give you a more definitive answer, but it really is on an almost case-by-case basis. I would say if you're worried about feeling comfortable using a source about a miraculous experience in the church in in a class or in a teaching setting in church, then you might find a good guide by seeing if, if it happens to be in Joseph Smith's time period to see if it's referenced in the Joseph Smith Papers, which is easily done. Go to josephsmithpapers.org and you can type in a search for it or whatever. Or... Is it on the church's website or is it in the church's manuals? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that everything that's ever been in a church manual is is factually accurate. As more and more understanding comes out and more and more historical understanding especially is developed, some things that we thought were the case, we find, well, they weren't. And like all historians, you move on and you start telling the story with the better sources that you have. So that I'm not saying if you found it ever in a church manual, that proves that it's true. But if you are concerned about, well, can I share this story about what happened in the, uh, in the school of the prophets room? I think you can feel more justified by finding that source, not only on the Joseph Smith papers, but also all throughout church of Jesus Christ.org. And then you can feel more comfortable that it really is a source that's worth using back to the source in question right here. This, um, what, what would I do with this? Well, I certainly would not say Joseph Smith definitively taught that people would kill themselves to get into the celestial kingdom. And even if I was using the source, exactly what it says, he referred to a saying of Joseph Smith, which he had heard him utter like this, that if the people knew what was behind the veil, they would try by every means to commit suicide that they might get there. Even if I was going to say it, I wouldn't say Joseph Smith taught. I would say Charles Walker 
recalled hearing Wilfred Woodruff teach that Joseph had once said something to the effect of, and then give the quote. Then I'm being accurate. Now, as to whether or not that's true or not, with something like that, I would want to find another corroborating source that demonstrates that it's true. It is a pretty sticky wicket to try to figure out what sources are good or not, because just because someone says a thing doesn't make it so. As every Latter-day Saint knows, there's all kinds of people saying things that are false and blasphemous and, and lies about our church uh, and its history. And at the same time, even those who are making positive religious claims, sometimes they themselves have been in error as well. So I'd try to be guided by the Holy Spirit, try to take each source for what it is. If you approach a source that says something that you're not quite sure about, see, is this corroborated somewhere else? Is this used in the church's manuals or in its teachings? Uh, How does the Joseph Smith papers uh, or the church history library deal with this source? And that will help you have a better understanding of how you might use that source. I don't know if that was that, has this been more boring than rice tariffs and townships? Uh, No, not, no, not more than rice tariffs, Um, more than townships. The people cry out for townships. We've actually had several people email asking for more information on townships. It's happening. It, it's, it's, it's at a, some there's point, a groundswell. It's happening. It's, Rice tariffs. Yeah, I, we've had zero people. We have, a, we have a write-in third-party candidacy. 780% for, on Japanese rice tariffs. Yeah, it's, How it's is no so one interested high. in that? It's so high. Oh my anyway, gosh. thanks for listening this week, and we are going to cover a, a, a specific example of this question about what do you do with the later source. We're going to cover a specific example of that next week. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.